there are at least 400 physicians who die by suicide every year. That's more than one per day as a staggering wow. number, right? The highest in all of the professions. And yet, that's not even enough to deter us from addressing reasons that lead to burnouts. Hello, I'm Robert Tame, and welcome to Working for Compassion. This podcast explores how using compassion and emotional intelligence can improve people's work lives and create competitive advantage for your business. I'll be asking my guests how we can make the world of work a kinder, more engaging and productive place to be. Tune in to learn compassion tips for yourself and your teams before your people start dropping out. My guest today is Dr. L.A. Alvarez, who is a clinical assistant professor of emergency medicine and the director of wellbeing at Stanford Emergency Medicine. His work focuses on humanizing physician roles and optimizing the interdependence between process improvement, recruitment, and wellbeing. In the podcast, Dr. Alvarez explains how he went from causing burnout amongst his colleagues to teaching them about self-compassion and well-being practices, that the key to taking care of others is by taking care of yourself, and why shame and humiliation are no longer the way to manage medical errors. We discuss the emotional toll the pandemic has had on healthcare workers and why significant numbers of nurses feel betrayed. Dr. Alvarez describes how to lead with vulnerability, why Savor the Month is a big hit amongst his residents and how fried chicken and cheese is used to create community amongst the emergency medical department at Stanford. The sound quality of the recording is slightly below par but please bear with it as this is a great Great listen. Dr. Alvarez, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Robert. I really appreciate uh, the invitation. As well as the roles that I've just talked about there, you're also a busy man on a number of committees and other councils. Can you tell me a little bit about those and some of the roles that you're involved with there? Sure. So I think for the purposes of this talk, um, I also serve as the co-chair of the Physician Wellness Forum at Stanford WellMD. I also lead a national committee work on uh, wellness fellowship specific to emergency medicine. I do work on DEI space as well, so diversity, equity, and I think that uh, they're linked with regards to focusing on inclusion and belonging. And within the hospital, I also do some teaching. This is in addition to my clinical work. I, I still do clinical work in the emergency department. Wow. Okay. A busy man. Yeah. We try to we try to uh, balance them, right? And yeah, uh, I think uh, for me at least, I found the areas that I'm really interested in, and I and I try to also uh, manage my calendar such that uh, it works for me. I'm a nocturnist. I only work overnights for my clinical shifts. So I always have to try to find time so that my meetings during the daytime will also allow me to, to sleep. So it's really finding that balance. How many hours sleep do you? I usually sleep for about seven to eight hours, even when I do clinical work. If I don't do clinical work, I actually can get up to eight, rarely nine hours. But yeah, for the most part, I, I think sleep for me has been uh, pretty good. 
There's a lot about mindfulness, wellness, and compassion in the roles that you're covering. I just wonder when you first became interested in those areas. Yeah, so prior to my role, I served as an assistant medical director at a very busy county emergency. The volumes uh, were high, so to put it in perspective, it was once the second busiest emergency department in California and still is the busiest in the Bay Area, which tells a lot about how chaotic uh, that place can be. And in that work, in my role as the assistant medical director on clinical operations and, and quality and patient safety, my focus was to make things faster, better, more efficient. And I learned that admittedly, I actually caused burnout to other people and in turn led to frustrations from my end with not getting my work successfully done. There were always some barriers and I was trying to understand that. And then when I moved to shortly after, shortly being like over the course of five years, I transitioned to medical education because I realized that there's a lot more of an impact with the multiplier effects of my role. And so I started teaching in at Stanford Emergency Medicine, teaching residents to become emergency physicians. And I focus still on clinical operations and, and quality and patient safety. In that role, I also realized, again, that's when I really understood impact on psychological safety and belonging. And because Stanford has the first chief wellness officer and, and having that uh, work with WellMD, um, I'm able to really understand and be with other faculty interested in this. that's how I began uh, doing some work on just the, the wellness of, of the residents of the trainees. And then I also found out that we have CCARE, the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education. And that's how I started learning more about the science behind compassion. And what, what were the type of techniques, the wellness techniques that you started to learn about and started to use? I don't know if, if it's a specific technique. I, I The Stanford Professional Fulfillment Model talks about three big buckets in order to achieve professional fulfillment. One is efficiency of practice, which is why for me, clinical operations and patient safety is very important. Really addressing systems or institutional barriers that uh, lead to burn is key. And then the second um, aspect is the culture of wellness, which is really supporting our, our colleagues with uh, the, with the environment. And this is systems driven, both the efficiency of practice and the culture of wellness. And then the last part, and oftentimes in, 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 in conversations about wellness and burnouts, is the idea of personal resilience. And I remember when I first started with this work, I, I was so intrigued about the idea of resilience that I wanted to see how we can develop resilience. And it was not until I did work with CCARE, for instance, the Applied Compassion Academy, that you really cannot be resilient without truly being, without practicing self-compassion. And that the challenge of practicing self-compassion is real. And I wanted to understand how we can apply that um, in the medical field, especially for trainees and, and other physicians. I know that in, in my experience, when non-physicians talk to physicians about burnouts, um, there, there seems to be this barrier to even having that conversation because maybe the other person does not understand us. And so I've had to really try to use my own experiences to share how compassion and meditation and mindfulness have affected my own personal resilience. 
again, uh, part of that is acknowledging that you can work in the best place where there is a lot of efficiency in practice, where there's tremendous efforts, including financial support for the culture of wellness. And even with those, you can still be burnt or you can still have uh, low professional fulfillment if you don't have that personal resilience. Uh, you're always comparing yourself to this could be better or the, the other place is doing it much better. And so resilience is really needed in order for us to adapt to how things are and developing the self-compassion for me, what I've learned is that that's how I'm able to withstand a lot of the changes. We joke around in our department that we're the center for change. We're always changing and we've gone through so many transitions. Now, it doesn't mean that we're very well faculty, well people, and yet at least there are key tangible things, practical things that we can work on in order to um, overcome many of the challenges that we have. Uh, it's also, I think, important to just bring up that physicians, by definition, are resilient beings. Uh, we've gone through at least 20 years of training to get to we, where we are, including four years of medical school, four years of residency training. And so that's why I think when you talk about burnout, um, it comes off as uh, as an insult to physicians because they've they've done so much already and that we're able to withstand so many things. And yet, if the institution, if the structure is not there to, to create an environment where we can actually thrive, then of course people will burn out. That's why I think that, that conversation about burnout can be tricky, especially without really understanding it. So what I heard there is that what you've really tried to bring to help with burnout is introducing more self-compassion. And that is also supporting physicians' resilience. So is that right? Is that what you've really been trying to integrate? At first, I, I have to confess, Robert, that I thought that you can self-compassion your way around all the adversities that we encounter in medicine. What I'm learning is really the challenges that we deal with are beyond challenges. They're traumatic events. And so the repeated trauma, there is a role for self-compassion there. But really, the self-compassion is to set boundaries to acknowledge that this is beyond my control. I think that is part of self-compassion, that like being able to draw the line of where I'm able to make some changes, which are within my locus of control, and to draw the other line of, or the other side of that line of which of these are beyond my my locus of control, like which of these the institution should, and even acknowledging that the institution may need to apologize for all the repeated trauma that we're experiencing, as opposed to me always kind of blaming myself that I'm not good enough to, to meet the demands of the changes. That sounds to me like it's an ongoing learning process for you and those boundaries really bringing awareness to those boundaries as well. Is that's that right? right. Yeah. That's right. That's fascinating. You talked as well about your department is known as the, the Department of Change. You said that with a smile on your face. So tell me a little bit more about that. How come you've got that reputation? Oh, I think so. Our department is thriving 
very well, but also growing very fast to, to adapt to the landscape in academic medicine. So less than five years ago, we were not a full department. We were a division under surgery. And, and so becoming a full department really requires you to be a lot more independent. So when we became our full departments, there's a lot of changes that we had to do, including getting our, our chair. We've had transitions of our chair to, to get to our like final, like our, our official chair now. We've had interim chairs while we were doing the search. We also moved to a new hospital last, it's actually right before the pandemic. And so we had to adapt to a lot of operational changes, like even looking for where the bathroom is, like how, you, like the, the, the physical structure. So the, the old structure at Stanford Emergency Medicine was this very tiny place compared to the current emergency department, which, is, which has the footprint of an entire football field. And so with that, like just expanding to that space, expanding the program, expanding the, expanding the faculty, the, the trainees, I think brings about a lot of changes that I was referring to that really requires adaptability, resilience, not just as an individual perspective, but also as an organizational resilience. Talking a bit more about compassion and self-compassion, can you tell me how you define those two things? Yeah, so for me, I think, so I'll use self-compassion because I think it does cover compassion as well. I'll use Kristen Neff's work, which she, she defines it with three parts. You need to have self-kindness in order to experience self-compassion. And then part of that is, so you have to be kind to yourself as a first. Part of that is also understanding that you're not alone in, in the experiences that we have, the suffering that we have, including feeling inadequate, feeling not good enough, feeling like you're not uh, doing your best, even though you're really trying. And lastly is mindfulness or that, or that self-awareness, recognizing whenever we're in this uh experience of we're not being kind to ourselves or we're doing some self-sacrifices, skipping lunch, for instance, or not sleeping well in order to do more tasks or responding to emails or when we're already in bed. I think those are moments, uh, a friend of mine at, at the compassion training calls it micro moments of just being aware and, and then hopefully being able to make the decision, that active decision of no, I'm not going to open my email tonight or today I'm just actually just going to watch TV because I am very tired and that's all I can do and that's what I need at this moment. Mm. Um, you're not really truly over-identifying with a problem. You're not victimizing yourself. It's more of just a recognition, that awareness of, huh, I'm not doing so well right now. I'm not alone in this and uh, here's what I will do to take care of myself. I like that. It's keeping that awareness, but really that self-awareness and, and being kind, being kind to ourselves. It's a very pressurized environment, you obviously, and you talked about a lot of trauma that, that, that can come from that as well. How do physicians tend to look after themselves working in these high pressure environments? Yeah, that's a great question, Robert. I think that's where the main issue is. We have variable ways of taking care of ourselves, which is important because each of us needs different things in order to kind of refill our, our, our buckets when we're... I think the understanding of that common humanity that at least even though I personally will need to, I don't know, maybe sleep or do some shopping or, or get some sun, do some walks, some people will actually just need a vacation 
or they need a break to eat. So I think these are different ways of managing that. There's really no one size fits all solution to self-care. And at the same time, the commonality in this is that we are taking the time to take care of ourselves. I think that's very, very important. No matter what you do, what you decide to do to take care of yourself, the key is you are aware that you need to take care of yourself as you're taking care of others. I mentioned earlier that the emergency department is chaotic. It's, in fact, it's part of the VUCA environment. It's a volatile environment. There's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of complexity, and there's a lot of ambiguity with my work. I don't always know if if our interventions will work, right? We, we have to wait for the response. and. Because our interventions affect human beings, and if we see the suffering in front of us, either they're, they're crying, they're screaming, or you can see, you can understand that they're, they're truly in pain, either physically or, or emotionally, we feel a lot more connected with our patients, whether our interventions are going to work or not. And so if it doesn't work, or if it goes, if it works differently than what we expect, it's not uncommon for us to blame ourselves that, oh, maybe I'm not good enough to figure this out, or, or I made a mistake, or I'm, I'm terrible at this. These narratives, I think, that we carry every single day when we go home, or even on shift, is very, is very important in how we would then evolve in, in our practice. And if you're teaching and leading, how do you best model this compassion, this self-compassion that you're trying to encourage others to, to pick up on? Yeah, that's a great point, especially because I'm in an academic program, which means I have a lot of trainees. And I think the, the response to this is very different in, in a community where everybody, uh, there's not a lot of power dynamics or hierarchy. In, in an academic training program, I think as, as a leader, I need to share with them my own vulnerability. And so when I make mistakes, I own up to that. I share that with them. Oh, I, I have no idea what I'm doing here, or I'm really not sure about this plan. Being able to acknowledge that means a whole lot to a junior learner when they're struggling to figure out, is this a gap in their knowledge? Or is this really a very um, rare disease that many people will not know how to manage as well? I think those are very important. And just as well, I think it's important to also celebrate when things are going so well. And so one of the examples, I was in a resuscitation and my residents uh, really did a great job in, in, in saving this patient's life. And so on the way back from the operating room, because we had to actually escort the patient to the operating room, that's how critical the patient is. And we rarely leave the emergency department. So this is really a very sick patient. And, and on the way back, he was recounting about how, oh, I, I should have done this. I, this could have been better. And, and he just kept on going on and on about like all the other things that he could have done better. And so I paused him and said, I just want you to recognize, let's just pause really quickly because that patient is alive. That patient should have been dead like an hour ago, but because of your work, this patient is going to survive. And so as we're walking back, I said, this is how it feels like to save a life. This is how it feels like to do something good in emergency medicine. I just wanted to pause on that and reflect on all the feelings that you're having right now. And that feeling is something that I want you to remember because oftentimes we question ourselves. Did I do it right? Do I do it not right? But in that moment, for me, at least as the, as the attending, as a faculty, it was very clear that we did a, a, a tremendous job that really saved a life. 
And and I, I'm getting goosebumps sharing this because we don't often celebrate it like that. And and I hope that just as I'm sharing this, I'm getting goosebumps. That feeling will also remind them when they get goosebumps again and say, ah, this is what it feels like to do it right. And did you see that person visibly change in yeah, front of, of you? Yeah, that must have been really powerful. And and I think that it is very powerful and, and that highlights that connection that all of a sudden we had. We're more than just like I'm training him to be an emergency physician. All of a sudden I see him as a human being who needed to be validated for his work because he was questioning whether or not he did it right. And, right. and I think, so to, to answer your, your question earlier, this is how leaders can really take advantage of their role, their privilege of being a leader in creating an environment where you can inspire others and, and, and make remember all the good things as well, as opposed to in my previous role as the, the clinical operations person, just trying to make things better, faster, and more efficient. I really like that. And I think that's something in business, it could be very easily transferable to catch people People doing things really well, having success, but rather than debriefing just the problems, debrief the successes, because why was it a success? Why did that happen? And I think that's something that anybody running organizations could really turn their attention to. And, And are you trying to systemize that a bit more to be spending time debriefing successes? Is that something that you've created as part of the culture? Yeah, so I, I love how you brought that up. Oftentimes in, in medicine, we have this thing called the mortality and uh, morbidity and mortality rounds. So uh, M&M, when, especially when there's like a bad outcome, an unexpected death or complication of a, of a procedure, for instance. And I trained in the Bronx in the East Coast in New York. And the culture was very different. You have to stand in front of the entire group to present your case. And this is like when you're a resident, so you're a trainee, you're lower, you're probably the lowest in the totem pole, probably a little bit higher than the medical student. And then you're presenting this case of a uh, case that has gone bad. And then you have to defend yourself in front of everybody. It's humiliating. There's, uh, uh, there's a lot of blaming and naming involved in that, that experience. And so in our in, in the West Coast, we don't really do that uh, version of the M&M. It, it's a lot more like conversational. And even with that, it's very triggering. And so it really takes away from this idea of debrief as to simply a postmortem of what happened and how can we improve, right? And so there's a few things that we did in our department. My medical director changed the name from peer review to case review because it's not about the peer anymore. That peer has learned their lesson. It's about the case. And so how can we address this when it comes back again? How do we treat the same case when it uh, comes back? And what are the systems barriers that led to, to this? So that name change, I think, uh, was very important to just destigmatize talking about cases. And then we started doing save of the months, talking about recognition and, and acknowledgments. So if you save, like, again, that, that save, like that one was nominated as a, as a great save of the month, well-deserved. And in that case, it really highlighted that resident, that one person, right? And so he's going to be happy he got this award. He can put that in his CV. But it, it misses the recognition for the rest of the team. 
And so what we started this year is this idea of the amazing and awesome, which is an offshoot of a morbidity and mortality report. So we call it ANA. And whoever wins the, so every month we have three that we, we pick in the list of like saves. And then we give them time during our journal. Two people will, will talk about their, their topic for 15 minutes to just highlight like what were the key things that led to that save? Because you didn't just get lucky. There must be some systems thing, like multiple people, the team that's involved that led you to get that great save. This allows us to acknowledge the team beyond just uh, one person. And again, it's a nice reframe of always looking at debriefs as a negative. Yeah, that seems so far away from what you described on the the East Coast, was it an M&M procedure? That, there's a huge gap there, isn't there? What, why do you think there's such a big chain difference in the cultures there? Well, I think it, it, it's not completely wrong. I think that if, if you look at it from the perspective of why it's been going on that way, it's, the, it's that historical military hierarchical way that we think of medicine. If you don't follow the chain of commands, information gets lost and 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 in the past, like there's this idea that maybe if you're shamed, you're you're gonna not miss that case again. It also creates this fear for everybody else that like they don't want to be, they don't want to number one, they don't want to be part of that eminent, they don't want to be in front of that. So they would try their best to not screw up so that they don't uh, end up being in front of everybody to defend themselves. And then number two. Uh, maybe they'll remember the case. It's like a bad thing. And so they'll think of that when they see it. We know now that that's not effective, but that was before, right? Like even now, I, there are still programs across the country that use M&M as, as a way to teach medical errors. And, and it's not a benign thing, but medical errors are the third leading cause of death in the United States. And so it is real. And so are there ways that we can teach the lessons learned without humiliating or shaming someone who has gone through it. Because when you look at it, let's say, I'll give this example. A, an emergency physician who works at one of the best places in the world in terms of academics can miss like a simple heart attack on, a, on an EKG. And so you ask them like, why would somebody who's well-trained, who works in one of the best places in the world still can miss a, a heart attack? And then when you look at it, when you deep dive into that, you realize that it's because they're distracted. They got five other EKGs. They have to talk on the phone about somebody else. Somebody else interrupts them about this one patient who needs to, to eat. Um, and then they have another phone call coming in. And so when you get this one piece of paper, you don't really get to pause and look at it. For me, this is where self-compassion comes in again. When I feel myself getting interrupted multiple times and, and there's so many inputs all at once, I then recognize that it's like, ooh, I can't handle all of this. And so one of the things that I say is actually, I'm not supposed to multitask. I'm supposed to serially unitask. I say that out loud so that everybody, if there's a nurse or my resident is standing next to me to interrupt me and I'm reading something, I say that I'm not supposed to, uh, I'm not supposed to multitask. I'm supposed to serially unitask. It's a form of self-compassion. I'm setting the boundaries that I will take care of this, and then I'm going to give you the attention next that you will that, that you deserve. Yeah, I, I like that. So you just seem to be trying to model this behavior all the time, and it sounds as well this exhibiting of vulnerability is, is something you're really trying to get across, and that is almost encouraging self-compassion. That's right. And, and it's also still very hard because, especially in medicine, we've been taught to be 
tough, to look tough, to fake it at least so that uh, our patients will see us as somebody who's in control, right? You don't want a doctor who's just bawling every time they see you like suffering. There has to be a modicum of, of composure there. And at the same time, I think there are times that um, I would cry with my patients because of their suffering, and that's okay. Yeah, I like that. So we've talked about you helping people with compassion and self-compassion. I wonder whether you've got any stories where you've been on the receiving end of compassion and how that affected you. Yeah, it happens a lot, actually. And, and again, I think part of that is that self-awareness, that, that practice of mindfulness, that's being in the moment more. I, just like you, there are times that I will not so even just a few hours ago i was in a meeting and and all of a sudden nobody like everybody was talking and i can't hear them and so i said something i was like everybody's talking but somehow like there's a system there's a glitch in the system i can't hear you it turns out i just accidentally clicked my mute button and this is like 2021 where we're 19 months into the pandemic we're so used to zoom meetings and somebody just typed in in the chat like hashtag self-compassion because i do that a lot like whenever people are feeling bad i would just type in like to remind them hashtag self-compassion i use it on twitter and so for me it's a nice reminder that i also need to practice that self-compassion when i screw up even to the simplest things like as hitting like the the mute button to um, really talking about a case, a, a very tough case that I I really thought that like I could have done better. And and then other faculty would say, hey, you tried your best. I would have done the same thing in your position. So so I think that level of compassion has been really, really helpful. And that's because of an environment that we are able to create. Like I have the control of, of being compassionate to other people so that when I am in that moment as well, I hope that I'll feel it. And if not, then I too have control of taking care myself and not really depend on other people to create that space that's good so we talked a little bit there about how in the medical professions it's sometimes required to really focus on the mistakes and learning from that what do you think is holding some medical organizations back from promoting more compassion and wellness amongst their teams and their employees well, I, I think that's a very complicated question because number one, there's money involved. You can't just like expect people to be well without creating support systems. So if we know that every single shift, every single time I go to work, there's trauma that I experience. It's called vicarious trauma, the second trauma of simply taking care of somebody who is suffering. Why not provide a mental health to that is an opt out uh, system? So I don't feel like I have to use my day off to, to take care of myself or I have to pay for it on my own or worse, I have to report it. So, so some many places uh, in the country uh, require you to divulge when you're applying for recredentialing or, or looking for jobs elsewhere, if you've had any mental health condition, for instance, or in the past, it was it used to be like seeking mental health. That is, is just not supporting the physicians, for instance, right? Because mm. if we're truly acknowledging that uh, it's a traumatic event, then we should just provide them the support. So those things are, are, I think, important to understand. We know the financial cost of one physician who are who is burnt out. WellMD has done this research and it's about $500,000 to $2 million to recruit one physician who is burnt out because of inefficiencies, the time it will take to recruit them, their move, and then also the whoever is leaving because of burnouts, the, the cost of their inefficiencies. 
And so we know that it's very costly for one physician to be burnt out. And yet, despite that, there's many, many competing priorities in, in our work that I think prevents wellness to be in the forefront. I think for me, um, that's why using compassion, for instance, as a way to gauge our work. So in any decision-making, if you can make decisions that are compassionate, then we can minimize a lot of these inefficiencies that perhaps is within our, our, our sphere of influence. I can see the, the complexity, but that extraordinary, when you understand the costs of burnout, makes me think that that needs publicizing a little bit more. In any profession, if you're burning people out, you're not retaining people, just that sheer cost, but also the disruption to the organization. It can't be understated. And maybe that needs to be more top of mind when people are thinking how they're designing their organizations and how much pressure they're sometimes having to apply. Yeah, I think it is, but it's it's a very higher level, right? It's, that's in the C-suite. That's a corporate level decision. That's not really the medical director. It doesn't really influence the medical director as much. And even if we use the language of like, there are at least 400 physicians who die by suicide every year. That's more than one per day as a staggering wow. number, right? The highest in all of the, the professions. And yet that's not even enough to deter us from addressing systems reasons that lead to burnouts. And so I think for me, that's why when you said like, I'm doing so many different things, part of that is because of truly my interest in, in creating an environment that is well, and you have to do it in, in multimodal um, aspects. You, you address it from a clinical operations perspective, you address it from quality improvement, you uh, address it from diversity, equity, inclusion, you affect it from all personal resilience. And so, so there's many, medical education, teaching, right? So, so yeah, I think there's many ways of, of addressing well-being, especially during the pandemic when stressors are, are just mm. even harder because of further restrictions. I'm sensing the pressure and the burnout is, is actually increasing rather than leveling off or, or, or going down. Of course, that's correct. I think that we will be, we will see as, and we're seeing it now, we, we kind of predicted this last year, that the toll, the, the emotional toll of the pandemic to healthcare workers is significant, such that we're seeing more deaths by suicide right now. And we are still in the pandemic. I can't, I, I cannot imagine what it would be like once we're actually over the pandemic and the trauma, the amount of trauma that we have experienced simply just because of the pandemic and how that will change the way that we take care of patients, the way that we take care of ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, the second, so this, the Delta variant right now is, is on the rise here in, in the United States. Last year, you would see frontline workers, including nurses and, and physicians, really putting themselves in harm's way to take care of, of our patients who had who have COVID. Now you are seeing several nurses like across the country, like leaving the profession because now they feel betrayed, betrayed not just by the system, but betrayed by the patients who refuse to take the vaccinations, who refuse to do the masking or other precautions that would prevent the spread of, of the Delta variants. And so now people are, are leaving the profession simply because they can't take it anymore. They, last year, there was some heroism that, that came with, and this year it's more of people are recognizing that they're not really valued as much.
And so understanding that, I think from a leader's perspective, having compassion to that, not just compassion to the patients, but also compassion to the uh, frontline workers will hopefully make us change the way that we practice, the way that we see frontline workers, the way that we treat the politics uh, surrounding. That's fully understandable as you explain those factors. And I suppose it's going to take a while for this trauma also to be processed. As we look forward over the next years, it's going to take a long time to fully assess the impact that it's had. And, And then talking about nurses who are no longer wanting to work in the profession, then obviously people need to be trained. That's going to keep mounting the pressure on the people that are existing. So it's a real leveller, isn't it? The the pandemic has just turned the world of work, whether that's in business, hospitality or the medical profession, upside down. And it's really how we're going to learn the lessons, really, and and improve things for the future. Any thoughts on that? Yes, and we don't have to wait until the pandemic is over. We can sure. start now with taking care of ourselves, being compassionate with ourselves, being co- like beyond just compassion for others, like really, truly taking the time of, of practicing self-compassion, because then we're able to set those boundaries. We're able to then understand our role in, in all of this and then take all the necessary steps in order to recharge, refresh, um, and also protect our. I think only then can we feel less betrayed by the institution, by, by all the things that's happening. And, and you're right, like maybe it's a year from now, maybe it's two years from now, but we don't have to wait then for our lessons learned. We can learn from what we've learned in the past year, which is even the same thing as what we've learned in 2016 when Wellam needed a survey amongst all physicians at Stanford. What they found was that physicians with the highest burnout had the lowest self-compassion. And also, physicians who had high self-compassion had the lowest burnout. So it's pretty important to understand that we have control. We can train ourselves to be self-compassionate and it will help us uh, and protect us uh, from being burnt out. Again, it does get rid of all the systemic issues that lead to burnout. And at the same time, it creates this boundaries of this is all I can do. Maybe I need to leave or maybe I need to change profession. Or maybe if I have some influence on changing this environment, then I can do that. And it can start with like the simplest of, of steps. Like for me, when I do work now, I bring food because there's something about with food that connects people, right? I buy some random food that I've never tried before in the grocery, then I bring that. It's a nice conversation piece because I haven't tried it. It gives me a chance. Again, there's that sense of vulnerability. You're trying something new. And then everybody like shares like, oh, I haven't tried this before. I really like this. And yet it creates this community because again, just like me, everybody will want to, to eat food. They may not like the food, but at least there's this like, there's this connection of food with a sense of community. Um, and, and, and being aware of that, like, hey, we're doing this right now. Let's take a moment to just like highlight the fact that we're actually taking the time to take care of ourselves. That's brilliant. I, I love that. And I, I'm a big foodie myself. So just tell me a, a couple of the types of food you're taking in and the kind of reactions you've got. Oh, I can tell, again, I, I do this every week, so this is very easy for me. I started off, I think, so I work Friday night, 
and I brought some chips, nothing too fancy, regular chips. And so people were like picking it. They were really nuts. It was actually not, it was a little fancy. I thought it was like this Hawaiian macadamia nuts cookies that uh, that we were, were sharing. And, and so some people were like, oh, I hate macadamia. So you're hearing people's like preferences. And so the, the next night I brought some cheese. I, I brought some Anchego cheese for people to like pick on. And then the last nights, because I, I worked with the same team for, for three nights in a row, I, I brought fried chicken uh, from my favorite place, uh, fried chicken place here in San Francisco, which is weird because it's from a, a, a gas station. And so my car like stunk up with fried chicken. It takes me an hour to, to, to get to work. And, and so of course, like people like they can smell the fried chicken and, and everybody was congregating. I was like, oh, I have fried chicken. And so that was like the conversation that night, like fried chicken. Great. Yeah, no, food's a really good conversation. Everybody always has, has an opinion, don't they? Which is coming to the last few questions. I, I did pick up on that. Was it right that Stanford have been the first hospital to have uh, a chief wellness officer? Is that something that you envisage other hospitals, other medical centers taking that on? Yeah, over the past several years, uh, many more hospitals have taken on this role of having a chief wellness officer. Um, there's a chief wellness officer course. And so, yeah, I think it, that will definitely continue. And even for my role as director of well-being, for instance, within my department, I go to several meetings that's not really specific to well-being. Some of them are clinical operations. Some of them are process improvements. And my role there is to specifically just provide insight from a well-being perspective is this the right decision to move forward? Can we at least apply human factors empathy on how we would feel if we are in the in, in the shoes of the, the clinicians working that day? And so when, when bad outcomes happen, for instance, it's very easy to put on the retrospective scope and say, oh, they should have done this or they could have done this. And, and I usually would bring up, well, I can see myself in their situation in that very moment that I would make that same thing. So what prevented them from, from following that same line of errors? Like what are things that were happening then that, that continued to lead to these uh, events? I think those types of empathy, so, so from a design thinking perspective, if you put yourself in the, the end user's shoes, then perhaps we can see why it was not really un, unheard of for a smart doctor to miss a heart attack. It's because of all the other complexities that I shared earlier that led yeah. to that. Just you personally. Sorry to interrupt you one more, Robert. Monica Warline and Jane Dutton wrote a book, Awakening Compassionate Work. And really, that's, that's the goal here. If you can awaken compassionate work and apply that in everything that you do, then perhaps we can create a more compassionate work environment. And as you said earlier as well, all of these things can be taught and learnt. It's not impossible for all of us to learn about self-compassion and to start to implement it and to learn how to create more awareness in our lives and more mindfulness. The returns or the rewards by learning about these disciplines, they can bring great benefits. Yeah, it's... It's easier said than done, though. Imagine you're a you're a trainee in, in emergency medicine. You work um, up to sixty to seventy hours per week, and you're balancing. That's all clinical work, and then you add their time to study at home, and so you really don't have a lot of time for yourself. 
and then you ask them to to practice self-compassion or training them how to practice self-compassion that takes dedication mm -hmm. that takes deliberate practice and so i think the shift should be we have to be clever with finding ways to teach them self-compassion without taking more of their time away from taking care of themselves so almost integrate it somehow in their current curriculum they what, what right. is being taught now and that would be a very clever way of doing it a very smart way of doing it wouldn't it that's right except for and i think this is the challenge you need more buy-in from other faculty to also do the same compassion is a very hokey thing they they, they think that it's like it's a soft skill where in fact if you truly practice self-compassion it can be a very powerful fierce way of creating boundaries but that's down to us to change that image of compassion of being hokey that's, right. that, that's part of what we're trying to do here uh, just finishing up be interested you obviously love food it, it, you're a big traveler as well i mean what what helps you get through these pressurized times uh -huh. LA yeah so in, in my work in high performance teams we talk about the these interactions the trauma that we deal with as residue and so every time I take care of a patient that that did not go so well or, or every time I, I see trauma there's a residue that stays with me and we have to find ways our own ways to, to kind of not get rid of it but also kind of like manage it if, if those are things that we need to just process over time and so for me, I like to travel. And so I've always, since residency training, I made it to, to a point to travel to at least two different countries to give myself like different perspective. I tra travel or be like either for scuba diving or snowboarding or simply eating, right? Like I travel for food sometimes. And, and, and again, that allows me to connect with friends, that allows me to meet new friends. But that means that's only twice a year, like for me at least, right? So imagine what it would be like when we're dealing with stress every single day. So I think there are ways that I do I, that I deal with it on shift. I do a lot of breathing exercises. I do practice meditation every day to to be more present, to really train my my mind to slow down when I when I want it to. And I also, again, part of self-compassion is to simply some days I veg out. I just watch Ted Lasso or some TV show, right? And even though I have a ton of other deadlines, I think being able, so when you asked me earlier, like how do I balance my life and how do I deal with schedule? It's really that, like I'm comfortable with not finishing a project because I also will recognize that I'm not doing so well. I'm, I'm really tired. I had a very tough case and it's still like bothering me. I need to, I need time to process that. So I, either I would go get a massage, like go to a spa or whatnot, like whatever self-care that, that I think I would need, I try to do that. Well, that's really inspiring. And I could uh, definitely learn a little bit from that. Finally, are there any leaders out there that, that you really admire that are leading with compassion? Yeah, again, I think you, you've seen many of them at the Applied Compassion Training, different versions of, of their work and in, in their capstone and, and, and really creating change within their own group. I think from a healthcare field, there's several people definitely across the country. You just have to follow like different hashtags in, on Twitter, for instance, to, to, to read. For me, one of the things that I like is uh, hashtag doctors are humans too. And these are, I think, people who can be vulnerable about their experience, who can share about their mistakes and also would celebrate wins in order to really just normalize what actually it feels like to be a doctor. So what was that hashtag again? 
Hashtag doctors are humans too. I like the sound of that. Great. Well, I've taken up lots of your time. I do appreciate it. It's been really interesting conversation. So much about self-compassion and vulnerability and celebrating, you know, the successes uh, as well as looking at uh, the mistakes. I think there's some really great lessons there. So, yeah, it's been a pleasure to to talk to you this evening. Anything else you'd like to add to the conversation? No, thank you, Robert. I think uh, I echo Dr. James Doty, who's the, uh, the founder of Seacare, that uh, each of us has the capacity to do good things. And so with that, I think that each of us can, within our own sphere of influence, within our, our, our sphere of control, we can make our world um, a little better by practicing compassion to ourselves, which then will allow us to then be compassionate to other people. Well, that's a great way to finish. So thank you, Dr. L.A. Alvarez. It's been a real pleasure. And yeah, I'll let you get on with the rest of your day. Perfect. Take care, Robert.